Hey everybody, welcome to The Edge Podcast by MGR, your host David Gill here. I hope everybody's having a fantastic week as always, I certainly am. This week we are discussing two uh, major, yeah I guess you could call it major, uh, tech uh, topics. And so the first one I teased last week, if you listened to my interview with Joshua Browder, which if you didn't, you should certainly listen to it, uh, because he's a very smart guy. And we talked about how he's gained millions of, uh, downloads for his app with zero paid marketing and the secret behind creating Bible products and, uh, and getting lots of PR getting lots of people to share, what you've made. So anyways, great episode there, but at the end of that one, I discussed very briefly uh, that I would be talking about uh, Facebook and LibraCoin this week, and I will, but I also wanted to start off by talking about Apple buying Intel's modem chip division for the mobile phones uh, for $1 billion, because I had a few thoughts on that. So let's get into it. You ain't got no money, I ain't got no time. All these faces looking funny when I'm driving by. So, for those who are not aware, Apple purchased, acquired Intel's modem 5G uh, chip division for $1 billion last week. Uh, that division has about 2,200 employees and was basically responsible for making the majority of the modem chips, which are the chips that... that would enable devices to use 5G, which is obviously, I'm sure many of you have been hearing more and more about 5G as it has begun to be rolled out in the US kind of slowly, but it's it's slowly spreading. And uh, they have basically said, it's, it's one of the major growth opportunities, right? And they've basically said, yeah, we're far behind, we give up. Intel has has given up on the really what is the 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 possibly the greatest growth opportunity in the chip space i'm going to talk about the apple side of things in a second but we have to talk about how much of a disaster this is for intel you know intel was and it still is one of the powerhouses in the chip space but a decade ago they were the powerhouse. They were the number one, and they have been for a long time, but they've really fallen off, and this is so disastrous because the modem chip space, 5G chips, really are probably going to be the most sold chips going into the next uh, five to ten years, because you have to think about it, right? We're entering into this, what do 5G chips enable? What do these modem chips enable? Well, they enable anything to be able to connect to a 5G network, which as 5G rolls out over the next few years and becomes more prevalent, becomes more widespread, uh, you're going to have more and more devices that need modem chips. The first is obviously phones. That's why Apple's buying the company because, or the the, the section of the company uh, is because they want it for their phones. And like I said, we'll get into Apple in a second, but... Uh, it, it goes beyond mobile, it goes beyond phones, because really it gets into this idea of the internet of things that I think we've all heard about for a few years now, you know, I think Cisco, is it, yeah, Cisco has a, 
a uh, little marketing advertising campaign that they said that you know they're preparing for a world where there's a trillion connected devices and what do they mean by that right so it's it starts with the phone that connects via 5g but once these chips become cheaper and cheaper and uh, basically more mass produced then you can start putting them I think the next wave when we're already seeing this will be in every uh, household appliance from refrigerators to dishwashers to toasters to anything that uh, is electric will probably have a chip on it in the future but it's not even just that I think we'll see even another step forward like you know you could see um I don't know, like you could see things that you would never think of having a chip in them now having chips in them, like a plant pot, right? Maybe you have a plant pot that is connected to the internet and it has a couple sensors in it that tell the moisture and maybe there's a way to tell how much light the the plant has been getting and it has a few of these sensors and then it feeds that all into this modem chip that then will uh, connect to the internet, connect to 5G and provide you all this information on an app. So they'll tell you, hey, you need to move your, your little indoor plant to another space to get more light. And then it'll tell you, hey, uh, today's the ideal day to water it. And this is exactly how much water you should give it so you don't overwater or underwater it, etc. Things like that. And obviously, that's a very basic example. But Things that, you know, a plant pot right now, no one would ever think of that as being a connected device. But the idea is that almost everything will be connected in the future. And that's how you get to a trillion connected devices, which means obviously if you have a trillion connected devices, that means that you're going to probably have at least a few of the major players in the chip space selling billions and billions of chips and this is something that Intel has basically just given up on. They said, yes, we know that there's the potential to sell billions and billions of chips, but we're, we're not going to, we're going to leave that to somebody else. I think that's crazy. And I think if you had said this, say, five years ago, that Intel would not be in the mobile space, the fastest growing space, people would have thought you were crazy or thought, uh, you know, it was Armageddon at Intel. And I'm not saying that it's Armageddon at Intel. They still have a very strong play on the cloud side of things. The two biggest spaces in the chip chip world are kind of the, the cloud front powering all of these servers that power everything behind the scenes of what we, we interact with and uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. Obviously, there's more and more and more servers constantly built uh, for these massive social networks, search engines, uh, e-commerce, all those things need to be run as well. And that's where Intel is still thriving. But they've fallen completely behind in the consumer uh, chip space as far as on uh, regular computer computers go. That's probably the smallest space now as far as growth goes. And it's very much just a price competition at this point. But the modem chip space and the cloud space are the two largest and continuously growing. And the cloud, that's really their last stronghold. If they lose there, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what they're going to do. But they're okay there for now. But the fact that the modem chip space, the fastest growing space uh, in chips, and they're just giving up. And this is Intel. I just, I, I don't know what Intel's plans are for the future, their growth potential. And it kind of has to tell you how, uh, 
again, disastrous. How how invaluable whatever they've developed is because they sold off their entire division with 2,200 employees and a ton of patents and basically everything that they've been working on for years for only a billion dollars. Obviously, a billion dollars is a lot of money, but for Apple and for Intel, a billion dollars is, is really nothing. And that they sold that division for a billion dollars tells me that really they just, and they were shopping it, by the way. It wasn't like Apple came to them and said, hey, let us acquire this. No, no, no. They were looking for a buyer. Obviously, there's not too many companies out there that can spend a billion dollars. Uh, there's, there's, I, I would say there's a few tech companies, but really it made the most sense for Apple. I don't really know why another company could do it. Like you could say, oh, maybe Amazon wants to do it because uh, they want to expand. But really, uh, what does Amazon need? A modem chip business, a mobile chips. So anyways, uh, Apple was an obvious buyer because then they can just put these uh, into their own phones. So let's talk about the Apple side of things. So for Apple, I, I think it's it's a very low risk move because of the cost, because it's only going to cost you a billion dollars plus, you know, integration, synergies, whatever. But it, it's not a high, high cost acquisition for them for the potential that it has, which is basically bringing them uh, more vertical control over their supply chain and bringing them independence from Qualcomm, which is something that they desperately want. Obviously, after they had these these major lawsuits uh, over the past couple of years with Qualcomm disputing uh, the prices of Qualcomm's chips and that Qualcomm was taking advantage of their, their, their monopoly position in the market. And so... Apple wants to get away from Qualcomm, but there is it's it's low risk in the the capital that it's costing them to acquire this because Apple has hundreds of billions in cash and even more if you include the uh, the debt that they're able to raise at low interest rates. Apple just basically has unlimited money to spend really at this point, and that's why they've been doing so many stock buybacks because you know they don't they don't really know what to do with their money. So this is one way to spend it. Good, but I will say that they are taking more risk in the sense that they are they are risking the potential to fall behind in their performance so obviously apple so apple is i would say always near the top in performance obviously they have premium devices but i wouldn't say that in the past few years that they've been the top performing device uh just based on um specs overall there's there's other android devices that if you just look at the hardware are better now if you include ios i would say that the iphones are still the best phones uh obviously i own an iphone but if you look at the hardware alone apple is normally not the leader these days that's just the reality of it and that's okay they want to take more time and and make sure that things are perfect right apple has a very they're a bit of perfectionists, and rightly so. Obviously, they've been successful in being perfectionists. But I think that they're taking risk because if if they, I mean, Intel was not able to build a successful modem that was able to compete on the market, and now Apple's hoping that they're going to take over this division and build a successful modem for their own phones that will be able to compete at, at the highest levels with Qualcomm. And... Uh, it's a bit of a um, 
business risk because building chips is not Apple's core competency. Their core competency is, uh, I would say, industrial design and building highly intuitive and beautiful software. Overall, their 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 core competency is design, user experience, UI, everything. All of those aspects on the design side, but not necessarily the component design side. And that's where I'm saying that they're taking the risk because if Intel wasn't able to do it, that doesn't give me a ton of confidence that Apple is going to be able to take over this division and just magically turn it around and build a amazing uh, 5G chip that's able to compete with Qualcomm and whoever else is on the market as well. That's that's the only risk for Apple is that they could fall behind in the in the hardware performance space if they decide to leave Qualcomm and build their own chips but it doesn't pan out. Again, the risk to reward, I would say that's the only risk because on the reward side obviously if it does work then you have uh even more control over your supply chain and you don't have companies like Qualcomm trying to bend you over and and really just steal your money. That's that's really what Qualcomm was doing and you obviously have more control over your supply chain, which everybody, every company wants. You want that verticality. But yeah, I think there's risk in that, you know, there's no promise that they're going to build the best chip out there. Now, I will say that their their other chips so far have been pretty good, have been pretty good so far. So I have faith, but we'll see. There's always risk in these things. It's never a guarantee. But for the price they paid, I think it was a good acquisition for Apple. So those are my thoughts on that. I just wanted to discuss that um, before I get into Libra because I thought it was interesting. And I really, I really wonder about the future of Intel more than anything in this case. Okay, let's talk about Libra. And no, I don't mean the astrology sign. I mean Libra coin Facebook's uh, I guess you could call it, I don't want to call it a cryptocurrency. I think digital currency uh, is what the consensus more appropriate term is for it because it's not a, uh, well, let's get into it. So what is Libra? Well, it is a digital currency, but it's not based on blockchain. I'll get into that in a second. And as of right now, it is incredibly centralized. It's not a decentralized coin by any means. And it's certainly nowhere near a um, distributed network. So I, to give a little background, I listened to a couple hours of the hearing that Facebook Libra's uh, leader, president, president, is that his title? Uh, the guy who's in charge of Libra, uh, I listened to his hearing because he was in front of Congress answering a lot of questions about it. Um, and then I read the 20-something page uh, white paper that Facebook released about Libra and took some notes. And I have a theory of what exactly Facebook is trying to do here. And let's kind of discuss it. So I'm going to just read a couple excerpts from the white paper so we get an idea of what uh, Libra coin is. So um, it's essentially going to be a digital currency that starts with so for those who just quick, quick background, cryptocurrencies um, work based off of 
having a distributed network, what they call a distributed ledger, and it has a bunch of a, a large network of, of miners who uh, essentially solve little mathematical puzzles in their computer and mine blocks and validate transactions that then go on to the blockchain and there's block rewards which basically is the reward for being a miner so you get small amounts of the cryptocurrency uh like bitcoin and there's different mechanisms there's what's called proof of work which is what bitcoin is based on there's proof of stake which is what uh, ethereum is based on which is more based on ownership of the coin and libra is more like a proof of stake it's more like ethereum and again i'll get into that in a second but let's start with how this is going to work initially because they have a five-year plan and their five-year plan is to basically be a centralized currency that's just digital um, for the first five years and then hopefully within five years they will be able to make it a fully open network so they said um, and this is quoting the white paper these core mechanisms enable the creation of a unique governance mechanism that builds on the stability and reputation of existing institutions in the early days but transitions to a fully open system over time so basically these institutions um are many large companies and organizations i think the requirement was you had to uh put up 10 million dollars and have a billion dollar market cap something along those lines i don't remember exactly what all the criteria were um but something along those lines so basically you have to be a major company with large resources and are willing to put up 10 mil and so they have uh, a few of these companies that have done it um and so now I'm going to read the next excerpt. Uh, this ecosystem will offer a new global currency, the Libra coin, which will be fully backed with a basket of bank deposits and treasuries from high quality central banks. So the initial Libra coin is a stable coin. A stable coin is instead of having, say, Bitcoin, which is just a free floating uh cryptocurrency that the price fluctuates on a day-to-day basis a stable coin is a coin that tries to match itself to a certain currency uh, we've seen many that try to match to the dollar whether it be tether or uh, other um, cryptocurrencies so it's just basically a stable coin there's also an ethereum one called DAI. dai um, anyways Basically, so that it's it's in the name, so that the currency is stable, so that people can spend it. Um, there's drawbacks and advantages to this, but we can get into that. Um, and then they said, over time, quote, over time, membership eligibility will shift to become completely open and based only on the members' holdings of Libra. So this is where I meant that it's more like Ethereum and that it's proof of stake. Basically, the plan is to, after five years... Uh, open up the ability to uh, instead of just having these large organizations be the validators to have everyone be a validator and then to continue quote uh, this is a little long but I'm gonna kind of briefly read over this validators take turns driving the process of accepting transactions when a validator acts as a leader it proposes transactions uh, both those directly submitted to it by clients and those directly submitted through other validators to other validators all validators execute their transactions 
and form an authenticated data structure that contains the new ledger history. The validators vote on the authenticator for this data structure as a part of the consensus protocol. And so this actually sounds a little bit like uh, delegated proof of stake DPoS, which is another um, consensus protocol. And I actually interviewed one of the co-founders of ARK, another cryptocurrency, uh, and that cryptocurrency is delegated proof of stake. Um, and it's a little different. So in this case, the, the main difference is that because this is the reason I say it's so centralized is because in a regular uh, DPoS uh, protocol, the um, owners of the currency vote on who are these delegates and so in this case and so in i think they had 51 delegates on arc and they're voted by the uh, coin owners in this case it's not voted on by anybody it's just appointed by facebook if you meet these certain criteria and so that's why it's it's very centralized it's not like if you own LibreCoin now you can decide who these validators are so that's the main difference but they are kind of drawing from a lot of different things but again this is their temporary setup so ideally they're saying that within five years they're going to be a fully uh, open system where anybody can any stakeholder anybody who owns libra uh can become a validator and you don't need these centralized these delegates quote unquote like in a delegated proof of stake but again it's it's not exactly delegated proof of stake but it's kind of similar and so i don't want to keep reading off of this white paper if you guys want to read it um i'll put a link to it so you can check it out for yourselves if you are really really interested in it but i just wanted to get to one last excerpt it's just one single line uh that shows that this is not actually a blockchain so they said uh, quote, there is no concept of a block of transactions in the ledger history. So Libra is not actually, the Libra coin does not actually run on a blockchain. It's a series of signed ledger states. So basically what I mean by that is the validator will confirm that the ledger is correct and basically add its signature and uh, but it's not an actual chain of blocks, if that makes sense. So they're going back to the, the current state of the ledger and they're saying, OK, we validated everything up to this point. Now we're adding these new transactions and I'm adding my my signature, quote unquote, and I'm signing off on this and I'm confirming that the entire ledger state up to this point is correct. And so that's how it works. But it's not like you have a blockchain. Um, so it's a little different, but don't let them confuse you. Don't let anybody confuse you and say that this is a blockchain technology because it actually it isn't. It's still a, a digital currency, but it's not blockchain. And so the question is, what is Facebook really doing here? And I'm going to give my uh, this is total theory. I don't know uh, what's going on in Facebook HQ. I don't know what's going on. Uh, at the Libra HQ, uh, I don't know their plans, but if I were to guess, based on everything I've read, based on everything that I've seen Facebook say and Facebook representatives say, my and based on the white paper especially, that they're trying to base it very much off of Ethereum. The problem with Ethereum is it has a lot of potential, but proof of stake, that that uh, what's called consensus protocol. When I say consensus protocol, it just means uh, what is the the 
the mechanism? What is the protocol in which we are able to validate transactions? And so on blockchain, they have the famous miners, and that's how they validate it. Basically, you run a program on your computer, you, you like I said, solve mathematical puzzles on your computer, and you validate these transactions. So proof of stake works differently. So you don't need nearly the amount of computation power, right? That's the biggest complaint that Facebook uses, or I'm sorry, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. And that's a different topic. I kind of disagree, but that's a different topic for another day. Um, but proof of stake goes by stakeholders. And so uh, it's a different system. But the problem with proof of stake is that they still have a lot of barriers. One, they're trying to get the transaction uh, volume up the transactions per second, which obviously is going to be very important for Libra. You know, Facebook has two point, I think across all their networks, they just released their Q3 number or Q2 numbers. They have 2.7 ish billion around their users between WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram and basically everything they own. Uh, that's a lot. And if you have all those billions of people using this currency like you hope they would, like they would with any other currency on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to have thousands of transactions per second, which Ethereum currently is not able to do. And so uh, there's other there's other things that are, there's other problems that are facing proof of stake that the Ethereum Foundation and the Ethereum community and other there's other proof of stake uh, protocols out there that are not just Ethereum that they're all very much actively trying to solve, but they haven't solved it yet. And so this is what I think uh, Facebook is trying to do here. I think that in the meantime, they're creating this stable coin that is completely centralized to just get people to start using the, their their digital currency. And they're giving this big promise that in five years, it's going to be a completely open system to get any uh, regulatory pressure off their back saying, hey, hey, this isn't going to be something that Facebook rules. It's actually, it's even going to be this organization over in Switzerland and independent of Facebook. We're just kind of the initiators of it. And then we're going to be the ones who are the first adopters, because obviously we're going to allow people to use this on all of our platforms, but we're not actually controlling anything. Um, and so that's what they're saying, even though it's completely centralized in the beginning and it's not decentralized at all. But they're saying, we think we can get at least a lot of people to adopt our digital currency if it's really easy to transfer, super low, if no transaction fees, uh, and all the, all the features of, of a great digital currency. But it's going to be centralized in the beginning. And what we're going to do is what we're betting, what Facebook is so good at, and we've seen this, especially with Instagram and really just a lot of their newest features over the years is Facebook is fantastic at copying. And what I think Facebook is going to do is they are betting that within the next five years, someone, whether it be the Ethereum Foundation or uh, another group, whoever, will figure out all of these problems that proof of stake still faces and then they are going to copy them. They're going to copy their solutions and implement them into LibraCoin, but they're going to have the advantage because LibraCoin will have the massive user base already. LibraCoin will already be accepted on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, three of the largest networks in the world. And they are probably 
maybe not going to allow the integration of Ethereum or other uh, or Bitcoin or any other uh, blockchain, any other cryptocurrency out there on their platform. They're going to say, we're going to stick with LibreCoin because they have the right to do that. The Facebook platforms are still very much private and they can do whatever they want with them. And I very much doubt that they're going to try to integrate Ethereum or Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency on to their platforms, but they very well will have the Libra coin implemented on their platforms. And so I think that they are going to leave it for five years. And they're basically buying themselves time and hoping that in the meantime, that they can amass a ton of users to actually start using the Libra coin. Obviously, there's no guarantee of that. We'll have to see how this goes. But they're going to try to have a ton of users and then what's the, one of the biggest challenges for currencies? What's one of the biggest things that faces Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these cryptocurrencies right now? It's mass adoption. It's the network effects, right? The US dollar has massive network effects because everybody uses it. Everybody has it. And obviously, there's other things holding back cryptocurrencies, like I said. But uh, the network effects are a major deal. And especially if you are able to solve the problems that are holding back proof of stake, and then they are able to say, hey, do you want to use LibraCoin, which we have all the same features as Ethereum because we just copied them, but we have a billion users and Ethereum has, say, a few million and it's going to take them a long time. Which one are you going to rather use? And I think that the average consumer, now you might think, well, people hate Facebook. People don't want to use Facebook. People would much rather trust Ethereum or another cryptocurrency if they were able to solve those problems. Maybe you're right. I don't know, because as much as people maybe will talk bad about Facebook, at the end of the day, they still have 2.7 billion users and growing, okay? And I think this is going to be the grand heist of all grand heists. Facebook is going to swoop in onto this beautiful, decentralized, uh, very um, libertarian, I would say, community of cryptocurrency, crypto land, and say, this is beautiful what you guys have built. You guys have worked so hard for so many years and hodled, right? You've you've held all of your crypto and you've been very brave. Thank you very much for all of your work. We really appreciate it. We're going to give you a nice pat on the head, but thank you. It's We're going to take over now. Big Daddy's coming in. It's our turn now. We're taking over. That's what I think they're going to do. We've seen them copy and copy and copy many times before. They did it with Instagram stories. They're doing it now. Uh, again, they're building a, a messaging platform that's going to combine Messenger and WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook all into one to create another. Really, the only thing that Snapchat has left, which they copied stories already, which kind of half killed Snapchat, but at least Snapchat still has the chat aspect and now they're going to take that away too ideally that's their goal and that's what they're building that's what i think i think i think facebook is going to say big daddy's here big daddy with the 2.7 billion users is here and we're going to get all of them to use our cryptocurrency and that's what they're going to call it that's why you hear the word blockchain being thrown around with libra that's why you hear people calling it a cryptocurrency because they want you to they want the general consumer who doesn't know the details of these things, who definitely is not going to read the white paper of various cryptocurrencies or Libra, and they're going to try to make it seem like it's the same thing. It's not, but they're going to make it seem that way. And that's what I think. Now, I will say, I don't have the hatred for Facebook that a lot of people do. 
but I also can't say that I have a huge amount of trust for them. And I don't want to see this happen. I hope I'm wrong. Again, this is my theory. But obviously, it's my theory because I think this is what's going to happen. At least their plan. Now, maybe in five years, the 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 proof of stake, all these problems won't be solved. We'll see. I mean, I we have no idea. Um, I can't predict that. That's for sure. But I think that's their plan. I think that they're holding out. They said, oh, okay, five years. That's 2024. We're hoping that by 2024, Ethereum Foundation or whoever else can figure out these problems. And then we're just going to copy them. We're gonna we're gonna pull off the heist of the century and end up ruling the future of digital currency. That's their goal. So, anyways, I would love to hear what everybody listening to this thinks. If you're listening on YouTube, you can just leave a comment. Uh, if you're listening on any podcast platform, because there's no commenting system, and this is what I've been saying for a long time that. Uh, podcast desperately need but you can uh, hit us up on twitter or uh i don't know whatever social media you want maybe use facebook i don't know you can hit us up on facebook uh all of our links to that in the description i really really would love to hear what anybody in the crypto space has to say about this and what anybody in the uh just, I mean, just anybody, what you guys think. What, do you think I'm right? Do you think this is what Facebook's planning to do? Does it sound realistic to you? Because to me, it sounds very realistic. It sounds very probable that this is what they're trying to do. But hey, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that we will have a beautiful, decentralized cryptocurrency future. Um, but I fear that this may be what ends up happening anyways guys thank you so much for listening this was a bit of a longer monologue today i have more interviews coming up again if you didn't listen to the one last week it was very good joshua broad was a very very smart guy uh one of the smartest guys i've ever talked to or interviewed so you should definitely check it out and uh anyways if you did enjoy this please share uh with other people who you think would be interested especially on my libra theory just uh, send them the timestamp. Say, hey, I'll, I'll leave the timestamp in the description. Say, hey, start listening at this point. What do you think about what this dude thinks? Anyways, thank you so much for listening, guys. I will see you next week.